so we probably should be faithful to your time. Um, welcome. Thank you guys for being here. And um, especially since I'm part of this deal, you should pray for me. I'm just saying, but uh, let, for sure, let's pray. Father, this is your work, and uh, we just pray that this time would be valuable, that you would use it in each one of our lives to bring honor to your name. And we commit the time to you right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for coming. Um, uh, Looking outside at the weather, it's Saturday morning. Some of you are trying to get out of Dodge to get back to wherever Dodge was. And so, thank you so much. Let me get a sense of the audience. How many of you are PTs, OTs, speech pathologists, or rec therapists? Oh my gosh, we got a room full. Okay. How many of you are other rehab professionals? Oh, perfect. Thank you. How about students? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Um, and then a smattering of some other folks. If you've not gotten to meet Jenny in the back, um, uh, she will be totally embarrassed that I just said that, but um, please uh, take an opportunity to meet Jenny. Uh, as you can probably observe, she probably knows more about PT than any of us in the room, having um, had a couple of years of experience with that. But thank you guys for coming. Um, so there are three of us involved. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the country music group Florida Georgia Line? So I'm the act that comes on first while you go get your hot dog and your soda. And then uh, and these guys are the real stars of the show. So thank you for being here. Um, you can see the title because I bet you checked that out before you came. Um, and so um, we've got, um, I think... Well, this will not work, um, but it did work earlier. Um, all right, so objectives. Um, we're not going to teach you to be PTs or OTs. So if you came thinking this was a cheap way to get a PT education, OT, sorry, not, not so much. We won't talk a lot about that. <clears throat> um, uh, we are going to talk about the role PTs, OTs, other rehab professionals can have in addressing or caring for people with disabilities. Um, uh, Caroline's going to talk about uh, principles of sustainable mission work, and now we're working, um, and then want you to understand um, the ministry of presence um, and how it provides really Christ-centered care. So if you came for something else, that's what we're about. <clears throat> um, we have a disclaimer we don't make any money on this, but if any of you know how to, we could monetize this, so please see us afterwards. We're, <laughs> we're glad to have a conversation, but no. Um, the only thing we do hope is that at the end of the day, <clears throat> or the end of this time, you'll have a little better sense of how what you do can, with people with disability um, can offer people the hope that is in Jesus. If you go out of here with any enhanced understanding of that, Mission accomplished. <clears throat> so before we get any farther, um, who the heck am I? Well, I'm Skip. I guess I should turn that around. <clears throat> I already have succeeded in goal one. I've had breakfast and some hot chocolate, and it's not on my shirt. So that's um, a, 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 you know, a, a win. <clears throat> I am, am from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I um, am an acute hospital guy. I uh, worked in um, our... Medical Center in Raleigh um, in the acute hospital 
was the rehab manager for a million years. Um, I left working for a W-2 about a year ago and hang out in a safety net clinic in our community taking care of patients uh, just one day a week. So that's who I am, and, and my world has been primarily acute hospital care. I hang out in a mission hospital in Kenya every year for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so that's the deal. All right, so let's talk about what disability really is. Um, Dictionary.com calls it, as you can see, physical, mental condition. It um, limits movements, um, senses, activity. <clears throat> Once you pay attention to the mental condition part, that matters. This is what the World Health Organization um, talks about uh, when they talk about disability. Um, they did a big report in 2011 they are scheduled to do another one. It should be released anytime soon. I haven't seen any drafts or anything like that. But, <clears throat> but um, there's some important things in their um, definition. Interaction uh, between folks who have a health condition with the environment, attitudes, yada, yada, yada. You can see it there. And that stuff is important, as we'll see in a minute. So um, um, 15% of the world's population, over a billion people now have some form of disability. Um, two to four percent experience significant difficulty in functioning. They don't define what that means, so I'm not sure what that number means. But suffice it to say, that's a bunch of people. And um, the prevalence is continuing to increase. So when they did a study in the 70s, it was about 10%. Now it's 15%, and you can expect it's going to be on the rise. Uh, the population's aging worldwide, not just here in the U.S., and except for a glitch during the COVID pandemic, life expectancy in the U.S. has been increasing, so you could expect... <clears throat> more folks would fall into that category of having a disability. <clears throat> and then we're getting a little bit better at figuring out what that even means. You know, how do we measure it? And so, um, and so um, 80% of the population in the world who are considered disabled occur uh, or live in developing world countries. That, you know, that's the, new, the newer way of referring to third world countries. Um, if you're from that era where that was the term, but 80% in developing world countries. Now, all of this data, uh, I mean, you can imagine they did not survey every one of a billion people in the world who have a disability. So you can kind of, it's, it's soft data to say the least. It, it requires um, a lot, some interpretation. Women have higher rates of disability than men. Um, I'm suspicious of that if the data was collected by, for instance, interviews. Um, at least some men are very reluctant to acknowledge stuff going on in their lives. Women, uh, it may be stereotypical, but women as a group may be a little bit better in saying, yeah, um, so, so that. Um, and then here's the important salient point, <clears throat> if you get nothing else. Depression the number one disability in the world. Depression. <coughs> so <clears throat> we probably don't have, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> just came back from Kenya 15 hours with my closest friends on an airplane. Somebody had a cold um, and chose to share. Um, 
so depression, um, major source of disability in the world. And we don't have um, a mental health professional. Any mental health professionals here? Yes. <clears throat> and, um, and, uh, and, and so that by itself <coughs> may tell you that women may be more open to acknowledging that than men. I don't know that that's true, but <clears throat> that may account for why the prevalence <clears throat> of disability among uh, women is greater than among men, at least in these uh, surveys. All right. <coughs> disability is contextual. This is really important to think about. A paraplegic in Louisville, Kentucky, where the uh, ADA is in force, <clears throat> there are paved streets, there are sidewalks, curb cuts, all the stuff you would think about. That's a little different than a paraplegic <clears throat> living in sub-Saharan Africa, where there are no paved roads or very few, no sidewalks. Access to anything is extremely limited. So it's contextual. <clears throat> the extent of your disability can relate to where you are. <clears throat> so what about disability? Well, it's not just about mobility and accessibility. Certainly that's an issue. There are huge psychological consequences. And when you reflect back to the number one disability in the world being depression, you can certainly get a, th thank you. Uh, <clears throat> get a sense of that for sure. Community and societal impact, whether it's here in the U.S. or in sub-Saharan Africa or Asia or um, Central South America, wherever it is, <clears throat> The community is impacted and society is impacted by persons in the community or society who have disability. Some societies um, see disability as a big negative. Um, they, uh, they, they just uh, exclude, shun people with any form of disability. Some societies embrace it and reach out. Um, <clears throat> in Kenya, as an example... Some people regard disability as a curse. And so then there's the whole, I don't know if we got, yeah. Um, there's the whole deal of, okay, well, who's responsible? So we have this disabled kid. Is it mom's family? Is it dad's family? Um, and um, <clears throat> the curse is very real. As an aside, less than three weeks ago, I was um, in Nakuru, Kenya, where there's an incredible organization called the African Baby Center. <clears throat> they rescue throwaway kids. And when I say throwaway kids, I mean throwaway kids. Um, we saw a little eight-week-old. She had been found by some kids playing who heard some noises, dug up some recently disturbed dirt, and found this little baby had been buried alive. That's how... Some people <clears throat> in some cultures re regard disability. And so, you know, it just makes me sad to even think about it again. So it, impact, it impacts social acceptance. Um, if you're a disabled kid, especially, you're just not a part of society. <clears throat> family impact. Again, who's responsible, mom or dad? And it, it creates huge family stress. <clears throat> Is it your family? Is it her family? Um, and you can imagine the consequences there. Profound <clears throat> impact on uh, attendance to, in social activities, church, other community activities. 
if you were at the presentation, <coughs> excuse me, Doug did yesterday morning, <coughs> the, um, the prevalence of Christianity is getting relegated to <coughs> the global south. And so, church is increasingly important. And if you're a disabled kiddo, especially, or adult, and you can't get to church, you're excluded from a big part of, of the culture of society. School. You can't go to school. In many parts of the world, governments understand that, and, and families understand that education is the tool that might get them out of poverty. And if you can't go to school, you're pretty much stuck. Your future plans, <clears throat> when disabled kids get old enough, they may figure out, my mommy and daddy are getting older, and what's going to happen to me when they're gone? And who's going to take care of me? And sometimes there's not a good answer. Okay, um, economic impact. You can imagine, um, even in the U.S., <clears throat> we spend substantial funds supporting the disabled community. You might say, not nearly enough. Fair enough. But in other parts of the world, very little resource. <clears throat> Can show you a picture of a kid in a little bit in a wheelchair. Well, wheelchairs are not free, and um, governments don't have resources for even a simple tool like that. <clears throat> um, does God care about people with disabilities? Well, duh. But let's talk about it. <clears throat> John 3.16, um, you learned um, if you grew up in a Christian home, you learned that when you were four. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you probably learned it now. God loves everyone. God loves people. Now, um, <clears throat> God's people care for people with disabilities. There are th- bazillion examples. <clears throat> Here are a couple from the Scripture. 2 Samuel 9, you remember... David is the king. <clears throat> he, um, he says to his advisors, Hey, is anybody left in Saul's family that we should be paying attention to? Somebody says, Well, there's this kid, and he's Jonathan's son, and he can't walk. And he lives out the rest of his life um, sitting at the king's table. Some of you are thinking, Man, I want to be disabled uh, you know, for the, a gig like that. But that's how... God's people address disability. I put Roman Empire here. I'm not a, a, a church historian. Don't even pretend to be. There are people who believe that the Roman Empire became Christian because when plagues swept through the empire and Roman citizens fled, it was Christians who ran into the fray and took care of um, people who were sick, often at their own peril. But it was that care and compassion that turned the whole empire uh, to become Christian. Um, Certainly, you can think of examples. If you've roamed the exhibit halls, you can find countless numbers of organizations that run to the earthquake, the fire, the flood, whatever it is rather than running away. Two of the more prominent, and I'm not promoting either of these, by the way, but um, probably the two most prominent international disaster relief organizations in the world are Samaritan's Purse and MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders. 
and uh, especially SP, <clears throat> races to the disaster with the goal of helping and exposing people to the gospel. So, it's God's people. And then, <clears throat> Jesus cared for people with disabilities. You know, we could have filled a slide with the examples of where Jesus heals a blind guy. He heals um, a lame guy. Uh, you, you know the stories, um, or, or if you don't, you can find them. Um, time and again, Jesus didn't heal everyone with disability, but he sure healed a lot. And probably lots more that weren't recorded in Scripture. So, um, I'm, I'm a PT, so I have to talk about what PTs do, but the reality is anyone in the world of rehab, whether you're a therapist, a nurse, a, a physiatrist, a, a student getting ready to be, uh, whatever, um, there, there are important roles you can play. Show love to folks. Um, I'll, tell, I'll show you a story in a minute where just showing up can open the door to talking about the God who loves people who are less than whole. And let's face it, all of us are less than whole. So, um, show love. Pray. I probably should have put that first. For goodness sakes, pray. Um, As we've heard in plenary sessions, God can do anything. And if you think you're not the A-team, well, first you're on my team then, because I'm not either, but God can do anything. Um, Provide treatment. You can improve an individual's independence. Provide training. That's often... um, I I hang out a little bit with the Christian Medical Dental Association, cmda.org. We actually have cards up here for the rehab section if you're at all interested in learning more. Um, But short-term mission trips, rehab uh, professionals are essential. You know, the doc can dispense some amoxicillin or whatever it might be, but it's you guys who can provide training that is a little more sustainable, especially to someone with a disability. So all is good. Education. You know, um, how many um, times do you take care of someone with routine pain, shoulder pain, back pain, whatever it is, and part of what you do is just providing some education we're not just going to take care of it today. Let's take care of it for the rest of your life. And here's how you can address it. Okay? So this is a kiddo in Kenya. <clears throat> uh, he was nine and a, a little over nine years old. And that's how we found him. Um, and that was his life. Um, in the morning, his parents would put out a blanket, carry him out to the yard, take care of him when he had to pee or poop, take him back in at night. And that was his life. This is what changed his life, and it was a stupid, simple thing. You know, just a wheelchair. Um, Now, he's intellectually pretty disabled. Not sure that he'll go to school, but now he can go to church. Now he can get out in the community. And it has changed. One simple, stupid little thing has literally changed his life. The other thing it did was gave us an opportunity, because the community gathered when we got this guy in a chair, And we could talk about the God who loves this kid in a place in in Africa you can't find on Google. You put it into Google and you'll get question marks. But God cared enough about him that a wheelchair showed up and his life got changed. And that's what addressing disability can do. All right, so if you're a rehab professional in any related profession... Where can you serve? Well, uh, certainly short-term mission trips. And if you don't know how to do that, 
let me refer you to the exhibit hall. There are um, probably a dozen or more organizations there that would love to talk to you about serving with short-term mission trips. In the world of the Christian Medical Dental Association, they've come to the place where they regard rehab professionals as essential members of a short-term mission trip team. So um, mission hospitals, communities, um, long-term mission service. Caroline's going to talk um, in a little bit, and she uh, was in Vietnam, right, uh, for uh, a year, uh, longer term than a week or two here and there. So great opportunities there. Even at home, in your community, probably there's a safety net clinic somewhere. Somebody is taking care of people um, with disabilities or who have health care needs. Um, you can Google in your community or call your city or county leaders and say, hey, I'm a therapist. I would like to help take care of some folks who can't afford health care. Maybe they're just... And they'll be able to figure out, well, we don't have it here, but in the next town over there's this and give them a call. And then the other, you can think of other opportunities. So tons of settings where you can address people with disability and as a Christ follower, incorporate that into your, into your treatment simply saying, there's a God who loves you in spite of whatever um, Jesus died for you in spite of all the stuff going on in your life. You may not think you're the A-team, but God cares deeply, deeply, deeply about you. Um, and so um, here are just some things you probably already know. Spend time with patients. Listen to their stories. One of the joys, especially in mission stuff, is as opposed to here in the U.S. where productivity is kind of the rule of the day, you know, and I've got to see 14 million patients a day, you can take time to listen to patient stories. Provide intervention. You know how to do that, or you will know how to do that if you're a student. Um, share about Jesus and the God who loves the impaired disabled. This is a tremendous opportunity, a great platform. You've come to help. How come? Well, because there's a God who loves you and a Jesus who died for you. Plant seeds for other teams. Um, as you have probably experienced in life, not everybody you talk to about the Lord immediately falls on their knees to pray. You know, oh, thank you, I've been waiting to hear this all. Maybe some, but not all. But you may have planted a seed for the next person in line. And one day it results in fruit. Okay, and then should have put this first or last. Pray, 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 pray. Alrighty, um, I am done and I'm going to hand things over to my colleague Caroline. Um, and so let me untether. Thank you guys for taking time to listen. And uh, Caroline, this is for you. And I'm going to get off the stage. <laughs> okay. Hello, I'm Caroline. Um, so, talking about sustainable missions. Um, a sustainable mission is one that effectively meets a need, doing as little harm as possible. Um, so whether you are going as a short-term missionary or you're on 
the leadership team. Um, there are principles that can apply to any mission. Um, so I'm going to talk about those today, and these are things that you can keep in mind, whatever your role is, to help can, um, contribute to the sustainability of your mission. So a little background on me. Um, I volunteered with a nonprofit Christian organization in Vietnam. Um, I stayed there for three years and then trained locals to take over for me after I left. Has anybody um, heard of the book When Helping Hurts or read it? Okay, yeah, and there's even more books out there now. There's kind of this growing awareness of how mission work can sometimes do more harm than good. Um, so does anybody know off the top of their heads kind of some pitfalls or some mistakes that missions have made in the past um, that maybe are harmful instead of helpful? Yes. Feeling like you're the savior. Feeling like you're the savior. Good one. Yes. Yes, so resources, but not really a long-term plan for them. Impacting people's sense of dignity. Yes, impacting people's sense of dignity. Doing labor that can be locally sourced. Yes, really good one. Doing labor that can be locally sourced. Any others? Okay, good job. You guys are already on your way to understanding sustainable missions. I'm glad... Um, that you already have this awareness. So um, there's a lot of research that has been done recently on these factors of um, what people on the ground think um, is helpful and not helpful when a mission comes in to try to meet a need. Um, so some of these factors are compiled here. Cultural awareness, um, a lack of that, a lack of humility, um, a lack of real partnership with the local people, the local community. Um, no mutuality of learning between the volunteers and the locals. Um, continuity of care, there's not that carryover, just individuals coming in, helping, and leaving. Communication between host and volunteers is lacking some disorganization there. Um, maybe not the appropriate skills needed to meet the actual needs of the community. So maybe people who are either um, not highly skilled yet but want the experience or maybe they have skills but not skills that actually are suited to the needs of that particular people group. Um, and a lack of shared decision-making. So um, individuals coming in thinking they know how to solve the problem without actually getting any feedback from the people that they're trying to serve. And then um, what has been mentioned by you guys, um, maybe taking away from what's already in the community, and that can be... Um, Local people who may not have the same level of education, but they're still um, a trained professional in that country, and we might be coming in and taking away from that community instead of um, contributing and building out that community. So when we have people coming in with skills and resources trying to serve a group of people who don't have those 
skills and resources, it can create this power imbalance if it's not implemented in a good way. Um, so a way to correct this is with proper partnership and preparation. So um, the principles that I'm going to talk about today are broken down into those two categories. So under preparation, we have three principles and partnership, three principles. I'm going to go through each of these individually. So the first one is on the appropriate recruitment and training of the volunteers. Um, some missions have a really thorough system of how they train their volunteers with cultural competency training or other preparation. And with other organizations or other opportunities, you may be there a short time. There may not be a lot of training. So the more responsibility that you can take on yourself um, to make sure that you have that uh, cultural competency, that you really understand what your role is in this mission, um, the more that you're going to be able to contribute to the overall sustainability of that mission. So um, we're just going to go through an example of one um, cultural competency scale assessment, and this can be used to assess an individual's ability to connect and relate with a um, cross-cultural group. So if you can kind of do a little self-reflection, I'm going to go through these three categories, um, which is how this particular scale, called the IES, um, how it breaks down cultural competence. Um, so we'll go through what a high score looks like and what a really low score looks like. And you can kind of think about where you are on the spectrum of this and maybe um, where your strengths are and where you still might need some improvement. So um, with self-awareness, a high scorer, you are extremely aware of your own personal values, strengths, weaknesses, interpersonal style, and behavioral tendencies, and how they impact and affect others. You're self-reflective, and you want to learn from your experiences. A low scorer, you are uninterested in self-discovery and find it very difficult to discern how your personal characteristics and values impact others. Um, under uh, exploration, under that continuous learning, a high scorer, you are extremely inquisitive, curious, open to new ideas, and seek out new experiences. A low scorer, you have a strong preference for maintaining current habits, traditions, ways of thinking, with no interest in other ideas and ways of doing things. All right, moving on to interpersonal engagement. For global mindset, a high scorer would be you consistently expose yourself to information about other cultures. A low scorer, you are disinterested in other cultures and avoid opportunities to learn about other cultures. Uh, relationship interest, a high scorer, you, ex you are extremely interested in developing and maintaining new relationships and would be willing to learn a new language to do so. A low scorer, you don't put much effort into new friendships or maintaining old ones, relying on the other person to maintain the relationship. Um, and you're more likely to believe that in order to have a relationship with somebody, they need to learn your language. Um, Open-mindedness, this is under hardiness. A high scorer would um, not jump to conclusions and refrain from extreme stereotyping. A low scorer, 
You make snap judgments about situations or people and stick to these judgments. Um, and you rely on stereotypes to understand other people and cultures. And finally, emotional resilience. A high score, you cope well with challenging emotional situations and recover quickly. You remain open to a new culture even after facing challenges in that culture. A low score, you find it extremely difficult to handle psychologically and emotionally challenging situations. Um, your recovery is slow, and maintaining openness to a cross-culture is limited. Okay, so just some things to reflect on, but um, as you can see, that aspect um, comes a lot from the individual and what the individual brings to that mission. So missions are made up of a lot of individuals, and the more that you can kind of understand yourself, um, it's not that we all don't have... Um, strengths and areas for growth, but when you can understand that, um, it really helps a lot, just um, kind of having a humbleness in um, being able to be open to learn from your experiences. All right, principle number two, asking um, some of these questions when you're going into a mission or thinking about what that mission should be. Um, this is important for the overall start of a mission, but also you as an individual, you probably have an idea of what you want to do, even if it's a short-term mission, just for a few weeks. So thinking about how your skills can be utilized and communicating with the host as much as possible so that the expectations are really clear of what you can do and what they need. Um, when I went to Vietnam, it was because the local government asked my organization already on the ground, hey, can you guys build an orphanage for kids with special needs? And this was because they saw the kids with special needs as a burden on their families and the families not being able to provide the right care for these kids. Um, so they, they, presented a need, but kind of in that need, they were also proposing the solution. So as uh, missionaries, we don't have to just accept um, the need and the solution as one, but really, really listening to what that need truly is and um, offering solutions that that country may not even know exists. So what my organization said was, okay, yeah, we, we want to um, address this need, but how about a therapy center instead of an orphanage? So that is um, what the government agreed to, and then that's when they sought out um, a therapist from the U.S. because they didn't have any locally trained uh, therapists, and especially not occupational therapists in that area. Um, so then they recruited outside of Vietnam to bring me in. Principle number three, um, this is kind of the, the practical aspect of sustainable missions. So thinking about funding sources, does it have to be donation-based or can it be more of a social enterprise model? Um, the practice setting, are you training individuals who are in a hospital versus an outpatient clinic? Um, you might have to have more accountability for local people if you're training them in something like a hospital where there's a lot more repercussions if they make mistakes in patient care versus an outpatient clinic um, where you might be doing, um, like me, play-based intervention with kids and 
um, there's a lot more wiggle room for air without risk to the patient. Um, thinking about your short-term and long-term goals and always trying to match that with your length of commitment. So whether you are on a long-term or short-term mission, you probably know what you immediately intend to do, but to be thinking always about how can I be investing in the people who are going to be staying there long-term. So even if it's a short-term mission and you go in and you have an intervention that they don't know there, are you the one sort of working directly with the patients the whole time and once you leave, that intervention leaves with you? Or are you trying to invest in the people who are going to be staying there and uh, making sure they get to practice those techniques and you get to give them um, some feedback. That is part of that sustainability piece, if you can think about those factors. Okay, so this one can be difficult, this um, respect for the government and their legal and ethical um, regulations and laws. For Vietnam, um, working with a nonprofit, they really scrutinize us. And um, there was one time um, we, we had somebody get in our van with us to drive out to the therapy center, and they always want us to let them know in advance and register in advance anybody that we're bringing out to the center. And this was just a staff member who was kind of hitching a ride on the way to their um, destination, but the government still contacted us, and they're like, "Who is this person who got in the van with you?" And I was like, "How did you even know? That's crazy!" So they um, really kept a very close eye on us, and it can feel sort of like they're micromanaging. But if you think about it, um, they are uh, allowing us to work with one of their most vulnerable populations, and so just to recognize that as a privilege, and to understand, okay, we. Um, need to be trustworthy and, and prove that um, we're trustworthy. So to really, really respect um, whatever stipulations they might have in place for how you operate. Um, and this, this other piece, not being able to share your faith. So in Vietnam, it's a closed country. We weren't supposed to talk about our faith openly with any of our, our clients. And of course, our mission is in Jesus' name as Christian medical missionaries. So when, when I went, I was kind of wondering, well, how is this going to look um, if I can't share my faith? Because that's ultimately my goal in doing this mission. But I came to realize, well, it's not really that different than how I would be sharing my faith with my patients here in the States. Um, it's through acts of love. It's through building relationship, and it's through listening to the Holy Spirit. So we did have times, um, just a few times, when some of our Vietnamese employees, who are all Christian, um, they were prompted by the Holy Spirit to share their faith with some of our clients, which is a big no, but they, they still responded to God's voice in that moment. Um, so I think... We just have to use a lot of wisdom at these times, and it's not about our timing. It's about God's timing and just being wise in that and trying to um, listen and trust him moment by moment. Regular evaluation of programs for impact. Um, there's a lot of formal ways that organizations can do this 
on a more um, global scale for the entire mission. But as therapists, we're equipped really well to do this on an individual scale all the time. So as therapists, we are um, supposed to communicate progress with our patients, let them know the outcomes that we're expecting or that we're seeing. We're getting feedback from them. Um, And if you're working with staff, you want to get feedback from staff about how things are going. And when there's a cultural and a language barrier, over-communication is better than under-communication. So for for me in Vietnam, there were things that the families would share with the Vietnamese employees that they wouldn't necessarily bring up with me. And there were things that the staff saw as cultural differences between them and me um, that they may be shy about saying. But... If you can foster open communication and show them respect and that you listen and you're not here just to impose but to hear from them, um, that is going to make a huge difference because I was able to tailor my intervention based on the feedback I was getting. For example, um, parents in the U.S., they really value their kids' independence and gaining skills to foster that, whereas I found out in Vietnam with these families, they were more concerned about the barriers to their child's education that the disability their child had was um, creating. So my focus really shifted to how can we work on their special education needs and um, a little less focus on how can they be more independent. And our last principle this mutuality of learning and respect for local health professionals. Um, My staff, they didn't have a therapy background, but they were huge in just bridging this barrier between um, my culture and the local culture. Um, And like I said, they they kind of have a different um, level of trust and relationship and understanding with the families than I ever could. So... Just because they didn't have a therapy background didn't mean that they didn't have a ton to offer to me, and I was completely reliant on them every day um, to communicate um, what I wanted to convey and translate that into terms that were culturally meaningful and relevant, as well as um, getting that feedback from the parents. So... um, I think it's really easy when when you do have an education and the people you're working with don't just to um, think, oh, yeah, it's helpful for me to come in and start telling them what I know. But it's so important to come at it um, in humility, to be showing respect, to be building their confidence um, and not taking away from that to really, truly um, get what you can learn from them and to also really invest in those people who are going to be the ones there long term. We also found some local resources there, um, and I think that's really important too, is to think about what might already be in existence that is already translated into terms that mean something to those people there instead of bringing English systems into that community. Um, We found an awesome autism program in Vietnam that we were able to um, use and point the parents to. And um, if we hadn't kind of done our, our research a little bit, we might have totally missed something like that. So going back to this first um, graphic of, of this balanced relationship, 
one factor overall that's important is prayer. Um, so praying as often as you can in the big decisions, the little decisions, praying with your team, getting your supporters, your friends and family back home to pray with you. This is, I think, the most important aspect of everything. And um, honestly, when I was in Vietnam, the prayer that I prayed the most was, God, don't let me get in the way of what you want to do here. And um, I truly believe that um, I wasn't there out of the goodness of my heart. I wasn't there to fix anybody's problems. I was just there out of obedience to God and to be a good steward of the resources he gave me. So, um, yeah, this, this aspect is what really ties everything together and should always be at the, at the heart of um, your decisions. All right, so these are the sources that I used today. Um, I also wrote a book on my time in Vietnam. If you want kind of like more in-depth details, I know we kind of breezed over a lot of things today, we um, will have our contact information of the three of us. If there are things that um, you're interested in learning more about that we talk about today, that'll be at the end of the slide. But I will turn it over to Bree. All right. So um, today I'll be talking on the ministry of presence. And something that I want to start with is a story from when I was a junior in high school. And I, since I was really little, I wanted to get a scholarship to play in, in college. And I'd worked really hard. And in preseason, my junior year in high school, I slid into third wrong. And I ended up going to the hospital and... I had to be in a knee immobilizer for six weeks. And I was just moping around the house one day. And I remember walking through the kitchen. And my dad was making dinner. And I was just on my way to my room. And he stopped for a second. And he turned to me and he said, Hey, Bree, I just want you to know this really stinks. I know this wasn't your plan. But I want you to know that this was just a chink in the armor and it's not a fatal wound. And just his ability to turn towards me and to give me hope when things seemed so hopeless, was it changed everything. And from that day forward, I was still moving towards um, what I was planning to do. There was so much more hope and light in that situation. Um, so the ministry of presence is when bringing... When being with your patient can move mountains, right? So he was with me in that. And as rehab professionals, we're uniquely positioned for impact, right? We see every age and stage. We see NICU all the way up through the death and dying process. Every race, ethnicity, um, age, we see it. So we are, we're able to literally touch the nations just where we're at. Right? And so in order to have an um, understanding of how to help people, we must understand the brain. So our left hemisphere, right? it's that analytic side. It's the facts, logic, science, and language. The right side of the brain is the creativity, intuition, arts, emotion, um, and imagination. Right. So if I said... Um, if I was looking at you in the eye and I said, that's cool, um, or if I was on my computer over here and I just said, that's cool, I said the same thing, 
your left side of your brain would say, oh, they said that's cool. But the right side of the brain would understand that there was a big difference between those sayings. Right? So that right hemisphere is about the unconscious communication. So eye contact, facial expression, um, gestures, touch, posture, attention, all of those things that um, we can say without saying. And this really happens, it starts to happen when we're babies, right? So it's this kind of this cycle. A baby cries, and a parent comes, and they meet a need. So they, they come and they comfort, and they either, you know, they give you food, they change your diaper. Um, but while they're doing that, they're looking in, in your eyes, and they're paying attention to you, and they're attuning to you. Um, and so from a very young age, we start learning this right hemisphere of the brain, whether they're happy or sad, or whether they're going to be able to comfort us. And that's really attunement. So Merriam-Webster says attunement is to bring into harmony, right? It's that I see you, I hear you, I feel you. Um, Dan Siegel says attunement requires presence, but it is a process of focused attention and clear perception, a we. So going back to that story with my dad, right, I moped around the house for two days. And um, it wasn't until he had um, focused attention with me and had, a, had perceived that I was sad and unsure of the future that he was able to come together with me and support me in that. Um, so I would like to take just ten seconds... And I want you guys to either close your eyes or kind of look at the ground. And I just want you to picture a time when somebody was able to attune to you, when their attention to you changed the future. Well, the good news is that we can be that for our patients, right? So um, secure attachment is this glad to be with you. And there are some very practical things that we can do to show them that we are glad to be with them. So when we go and greet them, our face lights up. Um, When we say hello, we're a little bit excited but calm, right? Um, During our treatments, you know, we notice that they have pain with an, uh, with an exercise, and we stop and we say, hey, I noticed that you had a little bit of pain with that. Can you tell me about it? Um, and, and celebrating their victories, right? So, hey, I noticed that we just did this, and when you came today, you, or came earlier, you weren't able to do that. Like, that's huge. That's our right side of our hemisphere talking to their right side of their hemisphere. I also think that it's important to talk about fight, flight, or freeze. Right, so in uh, the olden days, they'd have to walk into town to get supplies that they needed and walk back home. So um, let's say one of those days they were walking into town and they ran into a lion, right? They survived and they're safe, but every day that they walk by that area, their body's going to be on hypervigilance. Their body's going to say, hey, something happened here. I'm not sure if I'm safe. Um, And our patients have this too. So let's say a patient fell and they broke their hip, 
right? So they may have fear of walking again because their body says, hey, it's not safe. Last time I did this, I fell and I broke my hip. Um, and so there are some very practical things that we can do to help support them, um, kind of calm that sympathetic nervous system. And one of the main things that we can do is help activate this vagus nerve, right? So the vagus nerve is the parasympathetic nerve, and it's in charge of rest, digest, and calm down. And so um, some of the things that we can do are we can do breathing, um, so purslip breathing or square breathing, elephant breathing. There's lots of different kind of breathing activities. Um, if a lion's coming at you, you're not going to be taking time to breathe. And so we're telling our parasympathetic, hey, I'm okay. It's, um, it's okay to activate the parasympathetic nerves. Um, we can also co-regulate with our, pa- with our patients, right? So when we're with them, we can be calm. We can breathe. We can show them it's okay that we're here with them. Um, a cool compress or singing All of these things activate the vagus nerve, right? And so when our patients are able to be safe in their bodies, then um, it's important to engage their story. So why is it important to engage their story? Well, suffering internally means it's very isolating, dark, and heavy, right? But when we suffer externally, when we're able to share our story, We're able to bring light to darkness, and um, we have the opportunity to be bearers of light for our patients. Uh, So we also don't have to do it alone. God is with us, right? So Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he's given us all that we need, right? Any interaction that we have, we get to bring his peace that surpasses all understanding. We get to bring his comfort because um, he is with us. So um, as, I, as we wrap up today, I just want you to know that what you're doing matters. You're impacting people's story for a lifetime. You get to bring light to their darkest season and you bring hope where there seems to be no hope. We're going to um, open it up to questions, if you guys have any questions. Yeah. Could I put in a shameless plug? Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Holman, um, and I've worked in Uganda for about a dozen years or so at a big medical complex called the Lago. Unannounced to these people, but thank you for, this, for being generous with your time. I'm Dr. Cole. Um, I've been a medical missionary in Uganda for about the last 12 years or so, and I work at a large medical complex there called Malago. And uh, Uganda is about 33 million people, and Malago Hospital is the only tertiary care in uh, hospital in the country. So anybody who has serious problems always comes there. And many people get around by just writing these tiny little um, 
motorcycles, so we had tremendous trauma there. And Malago Hospital, as a government hospital, as big as it is, and they do have some physical therapy, but it's minuscule. And everybody there is so poor that your 26-year-old people come in with massive head injuries that we take care of, and you try to bring in the families, and they desert these people. And so what Caring Hands Foundation, that's what my um, NGO is, my 501c3 is, we try to go out to the, the bush and get these people to say, hey, Jim's going to be like this forever, or probably. And we bring them to the hospital and try to teach them these things. And we're in a big need of any physical therapist or anybody who's even thinking of remotely about doing this. This hospital needs a whole ward for neurological rehab. Well, that's a little bit more than I have to offer or whatnot. But what I'm hoping that you guys consider that um, and get a hold of these people in the future and say, you know, um, I can't provide all the money to get you there or anything like that, but we work closely with Yale University that has stipends that help, and short-term missions we consider is two months because the first month or first week you get there, you're just blown away. I mean, you just go, my gosh, I'm way over my head. And the second week you're going, ah, okay. And you start thinking and you start working with people, and the third week is a, yeah, I get excited. And the fourth week you go, i got to come back here. And so it takes some time to do that, but we're really looking for a lot of long-term people to do that. I can't tell you we have this all organized, but with people like you guys and, and you, if you guys would consider Malago Hospital in Uganda, um, I think in the couple next three years we could really develop some kind of program for them. And they have them there, but they're in desperate need of help. So thank you for your time. And I've got cards if you want them. And if you've been to Sub-Saharan Africa at all, um, those uh, motorcycles that he spoke of are actually sponsored by the orthopedic trauma services um, in all of those hospitals because, as you said, it's a daily event. Trauma and brain injury, orthopedic trauma, it's about as common as TB and HIV, which are also quite common. I know it's 10.30. Thank you guys so much. If you have other questions, this is who we are. Um, the OTs are the stars of the show. And how many OTs in the room? By where, where did you guys all come from? Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> and uh, as Bree talked about right brain, uh, those of us in PT, we have no right brains. But, um, but you, guys, um, uh, you guys are just amazing. And, um, and Dr. Bolt's story is not unique. I hear it repeatedly, um, the value of rehab um, in uh, the developing world. So um, pray, um, and if you think God's calling you, he probably is. So, um, you know, by all means, respond. Thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, one other thing, uh, do you need to talk about course evaluations or anything? Yeah, so uh, <coughs> Thank you. And the other thing I would say, um, 
it's our desire, that would be me anyway, um, that there will be a rehab presentation at every GMHC. So if there's something you would like to see next year, please make a note of it. Um, we'll scare up somebody, or GMHC will scare up somebody who can do it. So thank you again so much for coming.